This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Rosemary, Levi, Stephen, Amy, and Caleb F. First we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. First, Rosemary asks, what does vain mean? Rosemary, the Bible uses the word vain in at least two ways. A vain person is guilty of vanity, which is having too much pride, especially in appearance. Or something can be done in vain, which means that there is no hope of success. Vanity is the sin of focusing too much on superficial things or being too self-obsessed or proud. A man who admires himself too long in the mirror is guilty of being vain, and a person who cares more about appearances than reality is committing a similar fault. Vanity can also be trusting in something or someone who doesn't have the power to deliver. If you have faith in someone other than Jesus to forgive your sins, for example, that faith is in vain. And now Levi asks, What does it mean when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man? Levi, in the Old Testament, the phrase Son of Man meant human being. In Hebrew, it's Ben Adam, or son of Adam or Adam, because the name Adam is also the word that means man. Since all human beings descended from Adam, Ben Adam was a way of describing any human person. But in the prophecy of Daniel, the term son of man took on a special new significance. Daniel 7 speaks of a particular son of man who will come and reign, in other words, the Messiah. Jesus called himself the son of man in that special sense, alluding to the fact that he was the chosen one, the Messiah. Indeed, Paul refers to Jesus as the last Adam or Adam, meaning that he does the work for humanity that the first Adam failed to do, atoning for our sin and giving us salvation. It seems that from the very beginning, God's plan of salvation was built into that simple Hebrew phrase, Ben Adam. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Stephen. Let's give him a round of applause. Here's Stephen's question. Why is some killing not murder, like accidental killing or killing in self-defense? Well, Stephen, whenever I get questions like this about killing, I'm always curious, what was in your mind before asking? I just want to say for the benefit of everyone who's listening that we're going to talk about killing, but we're going to do it for informational purposes only. I do not want you to actually kill anyone or anything. I'm going to give Stephen the benefit of the doubt and assume that he's just curious like we all are and not, you know, planning anything. So 
A lot of people, if you ask them, would say that the Bible forbids all killing. After all, doesn't the Sixth Commandment literally say, Thou shalt not kill? Actually, no. No, it doesn't. Although it's true that the King James Bible translates the Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not kill, if you look up Exodus 20, verse 3, or Deuteronomy 5, verse 17, in a modern translation, you'll see that it reads, You shall not murder. So not all killing is forbidden, only murder. But it's not quite as simple as that either. The Hebrew word does mean murder, but it also means causing another person's death through carelessness or negligence. So the range of meaning includes not just what we would call homicide, but also negligent homicide. We could sum it up this way. What's prohibited in the Sixth Commandment is unlawful or unauthorized killing. Now, there's some kinds of killing that are not included in this. You mentioned one of them, Stephen, killing in self-defense. The Bible does not consider self-defense murder. Another example would be capital punishment, when the judicial authorities sentence a condemned person to death. Today, many people will refer to capital punishment as judicial murder, as if there's no difference. But that's not the way the Bible sees it. Can you think of other examples? Here's a big one. Killing in the context of warfare. That kind of killing is not included in the Sixth Commandment's range of meaning either. When soldiers go to war and kill one another, that's not the same thing as murder. You mentioned another kind of killing, Stephen, accidental killing, and that is included in the Sixth Commandment's prohibition if it's the result of negligence or carelessness. So if you're driving your car down the street and someone runs in front of you all of a sudden and is killed, that wouldn't be homicide, not even negligent homicide, because it wasn't the result of your carelessness. But if you were speeding down the road and you weren't paying attention to what was ahead of you, then that would be condemned because the death resulted from your actions. Summing up, let's take the words of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, question 136 says that the Sixth Commandment forbids all taking away the life of ourselves or of others except in case of public justice, lawful warfare, or necessary defense. The question is, what separates murder and negligent homicide from self-defense or warfare or capital punishment? I put it this way, the difference is lawful authorization. The taking of life is permitted in the defense of life, in the conduct of lawful war, and in the administration of justice with due process. Now, even here, there are limits to what is permitted, but at least in theory, what makes them different from murder in the Bible's eyes is that these actions are allowed for and regulated in God's law. As I've said in the past, whenever the Ten Commandments condemn something, they also command its opposite. So when the Sixth Commandment forbids the unjust taking of life, it also commands the preservation of life. Here's how the larger catechism describes the duties of the Sixth Commandment. 
It says all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any by just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, physics, sleep, labor, and recreations, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. All of that is commanded by the Sixth Commandment. And that's a lot, I know. But it gives you an idea of how the Bible protects life, not just by forbidding the unjust taking of life, but by encouraging us to live in such a way that we take away our own temptation to do wrong and also defuse the motives of others. If you focus on that positive obedience, doing things that encourage and protect life, then the negative obedience, not doing what unjustly robs people of life, follows automatically. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first one comes from Amy. She wants to know, have you read the Keeper of the Lost Cities series? I've read a lot of books, Amy, but I've never read those. In fact, before you asked, I'd never even heard of them. And I think I know why. That series of books was written for middle schoolers, and the first one was published in 2012, which was a little over a decade ago. Believe it or not, I wasn't in middle school, or even high school, or even college 10 years ago. The only thing middle about me then was that I was middle-aged. For me to have read them at the right time, they would have needed to come out in the 1980s. But you know what? I love to hear people share about books they've read and loved, even if I've never read them. Reading sparks your imagination, and it also improves your thinking skills. If you read avidly, you'll be a better interpreter of scripture, too. I like to say that every book you read makes you a better reader of every book you read, including the Bible. And now Caleb F. wants to know, what is your favorite joke? Believe it or not, Caleb, my favorite joke comes from a book series that I have read, Patrick O'Brien's 20-volume series about naval adventure during the Napoleonic Wars. The most famous is probably the first, Master and Commander. In the book, the sailors offer a doctor some ship's biscuit to eat. But when you're at sea for a long time, the food supply tends to suffer. And in this case, there are weevils in the biscuit. Yuck. So the captain asked the doctor if he had to choose a weevil to eat, which one would he pick? The doctor looks at the weevils and chooses the biggest, plumpest one, reasoning that even though it's disgusting, the largest weevil will have the most protein. But the captain laughs and says, haven't you ever heard? You must always choose the lesser of two weevils. Here's why that's my favorite joke. Not because it's so funny, that kind of wordplay isn't really my cup of tea, but because over the course of the 20 books, the captain tells that same joke over and over again, which captures something that I love about humor, the way something that's not very funny can become hilarious 
if the person who's laughing isn't really in on the joke. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.